Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including gathering times and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Brian Candelo. Good morning, church. Good to see you here this morning. For those of you joining us online, glad you could do that as well. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, before we dive in, just a couple of quick announcements. About a week and a half from now, we will have our Thanksgiving Eve service. And one of the traditions that we do there is our food march. So we get to uh, bless the food pantry, feed Salem and our neighbors. And so uh, you can go in the lobby. There's some papers that have the food list, or you can go online and get those lists as well. And then we actually bring the food that evening, and literally tons of food gets to be shared with people in need. We also take an offering that evening as well, and it goes for nations and neighborhoods. The nation's part of that is going to go to the school that we partner with in Macas, Ecuador, and the neighborhood part is to Night to Shine. We're hosting here in February again, so we're excited to start that back up. Also want to let you know that our young adults are away on retreat. We miss you uh, in this place. They're suffering for Jesus at Sun River Resort. I know, yeah. So John Stumbo is the speaker there, and uh, I've heard it's been great, but we just want to pray that God has taken what they've heard and seals it in their hearts. So would you pray for them with me? Jesus, we thank you for the young adults and for what they add to this place, how they bless us. And I pray that you would take all that was poured into them this weekend, that it would go deep, that it would shape them, that they would be drawn closer to who you are. And so we just pray your hand of blessing upon them, even as they travel home today, keep them safe. And as we open your word, I pray that you would just speak to us uniquely, individually, as you always do. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. One of the great techniques of storytelling is the idea of foreshadowing. We're probably all familiar with this concept. Foreshadowing hints at things that are going to happen. It points us to the future. And what foreshadowing really does is it tells us the things that we are supposed to pay attention to. So, for example, in movies, Star Wars, Episode One, we're told that Anakin will bring balance to the Force. And so then we go, okay, what's the force? And we start tracking with Anakin in his journey. In that great movie, The Incredibles, Edna, who makes the supersuits, has one rule about supersuits. Do you know what it is? No capes, exactly, no capes. And then we see ultimately that the villain syndrome is undone by his cape in this movie. Also, literature, one of my favorite book series is the Chronicles of Narnia, and in the first book, we're told that Aslan is on the move before we even know who he is. And then Peter, one of the heroes of the story, he's told before his first battle even happens that he will sit on the throne. And what that does for us is it changes the way that we read the story. We know that no matter what happens, Peter's going to make it because he's going to sit on the throne. So he's going to get bruised, and he's going to get scraped, and he's going to have narrow escapes, but we know that he will sit on the throne. Foreshadowing points us to the future and gives perspective in our present. And as parents, we foreshadow all the time with our kids. It's how we get through difficult moments. We're like, I know it's tough right now, but season three of Bluey is coming out soon. (laughs) 
and we're going to make it. Or, or especially right now, we go, you see, do you see the lights that are starting to be put on houses? And, and do you hear the music that's being played way too soon? How many of you are listening to Christmas music right now? Oh, we have prayer time after the service. And we, but as parents, we do that, right? Christmas is coming. We're giving hope to bring peace to the situation. And that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. Last week, Rob gave us this big idea. Hope declared for the future brings peace in the present. And that's our big idea today as well. Hope declared for the future brings peace to the present. And I believe that this is a phrase that we can kind of easily understand. And yet, this is a difficult phrase to live because even though we know the end of the big God story, we can go, we can read it. But it's difficult to live in the tension of this day as we look forward to that day. And so that's what we want to talk about. How do we live in the tension of this day, looking forward to what's been foreshadowed for that day? So we're continuing on in our series in Ezekiel, and we're almost to the end, and that may disappoint some people, and I've heard this weekend, I'm excited to get on to something else, but it's been a good study. It's been a good study for us, and we're through the prophecies of judgment, and we're on to the prophecies of hope. And so last week, Rob talked to us about the hope of the presence of God in us. God's breath in our dry bones, the filling of Holy Spirit. And this week, we're going to just lean into another great promise of hope. It's in chapters 38 and 39. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll begin in chapter 38. And this is kind of the moment where Ezekiel's pronouncements and prophecies have reached their peak. This is big what's coming, and, and the same story actually is told in chapter 38 and in 39. It just has more detail in 39, and this is frequently a, a device used in Hebrew literature for clarity and emphasis and to highlight a deeper truth, but this, this passage foreshadows the future for the exiles in Babylon, and it foreshadows all of our future who are exiles, those of us who are exiles who are longing for our true home. And what is going to be foreshadowed in this passage is the once and for all elimination of evil. Today we're going to read about the once and for all elimination of evil. Evil will be destroyed. This is the hope that we are declaring today so that we can have peace in the present. So let's read about some of the main characters here as we begin this narrative. 38 verse 1. This is another message that came to me from the Lord. Son of man, turn and face Gog of the land of Magog, the prince who rules over the nations of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord, Gog, I am your enemy. One of the scariest sentences in all of scripture, if you think about it. You never want your name at the beginning of that sentence. We don't ever want to be the enemy of God. Now, Gog is a ruler in the north, and Magog is his land, and there's a lot of speculation about who he is, but less important than kind of who he was is this idea that he's the personification of like the head of evil, and he is coming to destroy the people of God. And so God is going to make an end of Gog, you're tracking with me, right? Gog's going to destroy, God is going to destroy Gog. And in doing so, he's going to destroy all of evil. 
This, this is the future. It will happen. This is the foreshadowing of what we call the end times, which is really kind of the beginning times. But, but this is the foreshadowing of the end times. It's going to be fierce, but it's going to happen. We know that this is out there on that day, but we live in this day. And sometimes knowing what's going to happen in the future doesn't make it any easier to live in the present, does it? Because we look around and we see that everything is kind of messy. And so then we start to get hit with the case of the what ifs. Like, what if, what if we're reading this wrong? What if it isn't true? Or what if it's true for other people, but it isn't true for me? Or what if God isn't all powerful? What if God isn't even good? What if I'm the one person in the history of the world that wrecked all of this? Like somehow I'm the guy that threw a wrench into all of this and it's not going to happen. What if? And then doubt creeps in and then hope begins to fade. So what is it? What are the things that we hang on to in this day as we look towards that day? And as we read through this passage, we're going to read through quite a bit of this narrative. We want to pay attention to the tension that they lived in. Because it's the tension that we live in as well. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at three seemingly contradictory ideas that actually coexist. And we see this all the time. We see this with even God's creation. God created butterflies and murder hornets, right? God created dolphins and killer sharks. God created puppies and he created cats, right? (laughs) Sorry. Right, I know. Don't send me discouragement cards, please. (laughs) These ideas stand side by side, right? Seemingly incompatible, but both undeniably true. And so in these truths, we're going to find, right, in these tensions, we're going to find truths that we can hang on to. And so the first tension that we see in this passage is the tension of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, 15 different times in these 52 verses, we see the sovereignty of God declared. And when we read about the sovereignty of God, we need to remember that God is the ultimate power and authority, that he is absolutely in charge of everything, that he has authored the past and the present and the future, and that he orchestrates all of time and space. God is sovereign. And we see this right away. We see this army, this head of evil, this personification of evil. In verse 4, God says, I will turn you around. I will put hooks in your jaws to lead you out with your whole army, your horses and charioteers and full armor and a great horde armed with shields and swords. And then it goes on to list all of these other nations. And what we need to understand is this is the might of the world. This is all the power that the world has to muster against the people of God, and God is in complete control of it all. God says, I'll turn you around. I'm going to put a hook in your jaw, and, and, and I'll lead you out of that idea of, like, if someone has a hook in your jaw, you're kind of at the mercy of the one holding the line, right? And the image there is, I'll lead you out, like someone just leading the pet, like walking the dog out there. God is in complete control of the past, of the present, and of this future. He is sovereign. But sometimes, because we live in this day, and we look around us, and it doesn't look like we think it should look, and it's a little bit messy, our picture of God can get just a little bit off. 
We can kind of forget in some ways that he's sovereign and in control. As a matter of fact, we have this picture maybe that God is more like the Wizard of Oz. We're like, God, you got to do this big thing, or God, can you fix this? And then the curtain gets pulled back, and it's just kind of an old guy working some levers who knows a few tricks, but is kind of out of touch. And if that is where our picture of God is, we couldn't be more wrong. Because God is not old, he's eternal. And God is not intimidated, he's omnipotent. And God is not unaware, he's omniscient. And God is not stressed, he's sovereign. This is who God is. Oswald Chambers says this, we impoverish God's ministry the moment we forget he is almighty. The impoverishment is in us, not him. What he's saying is this idea that that we lose strength, we lose life, we lose power. God doesn't. When we forget that he is the almighty one, when we forget that he is in control, God is going to orchestrate all of this according to his plan. And that's what we see in chapter 39, verse 8. It says, that day of judgment will come, says the sovereign Lord. Everything will happen just as I have declared it. Everything will happen just as I have declared it. God is sovereign. And I know that we live in the mess, but we need to keep reminding ourselves that he is the almighty one, that he is in charge. There's a snippet of a song that I sing over and over to myself when life gets messy, and it's from... The hymn, This Is My Father's World. Now, I'm not going to sing it for you this morning. I'll spare you that. But the line is, though the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler yet. Though the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler yet. God is in control. We are not. And that's a good thing. And yet the tension of that is we still have responsibility in this story. We have a part to play. As a matter of fact, in chapter 39, verse 26, it says they will accept responsibility for their past shame and unfaithfulness. God is saying, yes, I'm sovereign. Over and over again, we see the sovereignty of God declared. And God is saying, yeah, but you still have a responsibility in this story. And we hold these these things in tension. And sometimes, quite honestly, that can be confusing to us. Well, is God sovereign or do I have this to play, right? And we think it's kind of an either or. Either we have free will or something has fixed the future. And and if we have free will, then we can shape our future. And and that's what the gospel of back to the future has taught us, right? That, That we are in control of the outcomes of our lives. But if it's all determined, then what's the use? And neither of these two alternatives that we can lean into are good alternatives. You see, if we believe that it's solely up to the sovereignty of God, then we will just live passive lives. We'll be passive. But if we believe that it's all up to us, that our responsibility is the only thing that matters, then we will be paralyzed. We'll either be passive or paralyzed in each of these ends. But it isn't an either or, it's actually a both and. Our actions matter. We do have responsibility. And God is completely in control and in charge. And there's freedom in this. There's freedom knowing that God's will stands, that his purpose and plan go forward. And there's freedom in knowing that what we do matters. We have responsibility. And there's freedom that we can't mess it all up. It's not all up to us. 
But it matters what we do. The beauty of discipleship is not that our thoughts and actions are diminished when we follow Jesus, but they're actually magnified through his power. And so we can sit in this tension, in this mystery. And it is a mystery to us, which shows that we're underqualified for the role of God. But there's a mystery, and we can hang on to both of these things, the sovereignty of God. And we want to live in this tension that we have a part to play as well. The second tension that we see that gives us something to hang on to is this tension between peace and war. In verse 8, it says that in the distant future, Gog will swoop down on the land of Israel, which will be enjoying peace after recovering from war and after its people have returned from the many lands to the mountains of Israel. They are experiencing peace. They've just recovered from war, and there's peace. It goes on to say they're living in unprotected and unwalled villages, that there's peace in the land. And this is a time when peace and rest will be a way of life. It's what's promised, finally, peace with God, peace with others. It's what we're called to as well. We're to be a people of peace who restore peace, who bring peace, who release peace. Salem is a city at peace with God. That's our goal. That's what we want to do. And yet somehow, war is coming. War happened, and war is coming. So how does peace sit alongside of this apocalyptic raging war? And this past week, I was like, God, how does this even work? How can we be a people of peace when everything around us is raging? And he brought to mind this picture of a few years ago, I got to take a bunch of high school students to Taiwan on a mission trip, and we happened to be there when a typhoon was striking the island. And we happened to be in the coastal city where the eye of the typhoon was landing, which thrilled my wife to no end. So it's like two in the morning, and uh, the guy's room, it's on the fifth floor of this hotel, top floor, and in our room actually is the roof access, so it's got this little door in the ceiling, and the wind just starts going, and it's raining sideways, and trees are getting knocked over, and then all of a sudden, the wind blew the roof access just right off, and water starts pouring into the room. And so myself and the international worker are grabbing all the towels we can and ringing them out and going back and ringing them out. And I look over and the high school guys, fast asleep. <laughs> now, I like to think that they weren't faking it so they didn't have to do the work that we were doing. But they were out. They were truly just out asleep. Everything in the world around them is raging. Water is pouring in, wind is lashing, the windows, trees falling everywhere, and they're just mm, gone. Maybe you have a teenager, and this makes total sense to you. But that's such a picture of we can be that way. We are called to be a people of peace when everything is raging. But there is a war that's going on, and there is a war that's coming. And so we're called to peace knowing that this war is coming. It says that Gog's coming to cover the land like a cloud. Gog, who has the power and countless resources and numerous allies and who is thoroughly equipped and fearfully efficient, is coming upon God's people and they have to be thinking, not again. We just got through this and who's going to rescue us? Who will rescue us in our weakness? Right, this, this isn't the time we need a Wizard of Oz God. When this comes, we need God, God. And this is what we see in chapter 38. And if we start 
at verse 18, right? Last week, Rob, when he read the beautiful story of the dry bones, had pictures. There's no pictures for this passage. You'll see why. Because this is God exploding in anger. This is some fierce language on the part of God because an attack against God's people is an attack against God himself. And so it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, when Gog invades the land of Israel, my fury will boil over. In my jealousy and blazing anger, I promise a mighty shaking in the land of Israel on that day. He says that that everything will quake with terror at his presence. Mountains will be thrown down. Cliffs will crumble. Walls will fall to the earth. I will summon the sword against you on all the hills of Israel, says the sovereign Lord. Your men will turn their swords against each other. I will punish you and your armies with disease and bloodshed. I will send torrential rain, hailstones, fire, and burning sulfur. In this way, I will show my greatness and holiness, and I will make myself known. And that's fierce. And this is the ultimate battle between good and evil. And quite honestly, if you notice, the ultimate battle between good and evil is very one-sided. Israel didn't do anything in this story. God fought for them. As a matter of fact, the first time we see the nation of Israel in this story in chapter 39 is they kind of come out afterwards to collect the spoils of war. And I just think, well, isn't it just like God to bring all of these spoils of war to them, right to their doorsteps, and they didn't have to fight. They didn't have to load up the truck and trailer. They didn't have to get on the highway and drive to these things. It all got brought right to them. This is the foreshadowing. This is what we know is going to happen. We know God will fight on our behalf decisively to defeat evil. This is how we can sleep through the typhoons. This is how we can have peace and war be these tensions that we live in. Because this is who God is. The last tension that we see is this tension of hope and waiting. And I want to talk about waiting first. Because there's two different verses in this passage, and I read one earlier that says, this is a long time from now. It said, this is in the distant future. And so we wait in this day for the fulfillment of the prophecy that happens on that day. And can we all agree together that we hate waiting? Don't we? We hate waiting. There's something that rises up in us when we wait. Let me show you a few pictures, see what rises up in you. When you see the spinning beach ball of death, don't you hate that? I mean, we have computers that work so quick, but when we see that and we have to wait those 30 seconds, what's going on? Here's another picture that just defeats us, right? When you go in and you take a number and they're on single digits and yours has three digits and you're like, oh my goodness, for the rest of my life I will be here. How about this last picture? Yes. For those of you that live in West Salem, this is your nightmare. For those of you that don't live in West Salem, you have at some point heard some in West Salem complain about this, right? You're living the nightmare through them. But something rises up in us when we see these pictures. Because waiting can be disastrous to us. 
Because like we said, questions lead to doubt, and doubt leads to disillusionment, and disillusionment leads to despair. And what we usually do in waiting is we kind of just drift a little bit. We drift away from the truth of Scripture to other ideas and other ideologies. Just this kind of slow drift, because waiting is difficult. Waiting lacks control. We don't have any control when we're waiting. We can't give God ultimatums. We don't give God deadlines. We try. We're like, God, fix this. You need to fix this. And what we mean by that when we pray, God, fix this, is we want God to make our lives better. Because we believe the ultimate expression of love is the removal of difficulty in our lives. But here's the thing. God is always more concerned with our long-term transformation than he is with our short-term comfort. God is always more concerned with our long-term transformation than he is with our short-term comfort. God always cares more about our holiness than he does about our happiness. And so we wait. And we need to wait knowing that waiting is part of the process and waiting for us is oftentimes transformational. But we wait with hope. We get to wait in this day with hope of that day. You see, for God's people, for all of us, exile is not permanent. Rejection is not permanent. Destruction is not permanent. War is not permanent. Our current circumstances are not permanent. We know there will be a day when God will once and for all, eliminate evil. As a matter of fact, Revelation 20 tells us that. Revelation 20 is the final battle. It's, it's the end of time as we know it. And Revelation 20 borrows language from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Revelation 20 talks about Satan getting Gog and Magog and all of the evil forces of this world. And they come out and they surround the people of God and then God falls and it's over and the people don't fight at all. There is a final battle. There is a final defeat of Satan and evil to ensure that every trace of it is gone. Evil that was dealt a death blow on the cross. Evil that is dying way too slow a death in us. Evil that's trying to destroy everything it touches on the way to the grave will one day be eliminated. Exile and war and destruction are not God's final words. The final words that we see in this passage are words of hope. Ezekiel 39, starting in verse 25. So now this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will end the captivity of my people. I will have mercy on all Israel, for I jealously guard my holy reputation. They will accept responsibility for their past shame and unfaithfulness after they come home to live in peace in their own land with no one to bother them. When I bring them home from the lands of their enemies, I will display my holiness among them for all the nations to see. Then my people will know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them away to exile and brought them home again. I will leave none of my people behind. This is the hope we have. And I want to put this last verse up on the screen so that we can all see it. And I will never again turn my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit upon the people of Israel. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. This is our hope. 
God will never again turn his face. And he'll pour out his spirit because Israel's problem was the same as our problem. It's not a homeland problem, it's a heart problem. And so God pours out his spirit so that he, his presence is in us so that we can be changed from within. Many last week prayed and received a fresh filling of Holy Spirit in their lives. And we need to continue to pray that. And as we live in this day, knowing that that day has been foreshadowed, it can be tiring and exhausting. We live in tension, we live in dissonance, but we can live with hope because we know that it will be different. There will be resolution, there will be restoration. God is in charge, he is sovereign, he calls us to live at peace, he fights for us, he transforms us in the waiting and there will be that one day. That one day that we're looking forward to. That's our hope. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. And I love that. And there's two things in there that I want us to hang on to in closing. And the first is this, think of eternity every day. And in saying this, I'm quoting our local sage and saint, Adela, who we have prayer time with every week as a staff here. And at the end of our prayer time, Adela always says, think of eternity every day. And I love this idea. This is a spiritual discipline. Thinking of eternity will change the way we live. It will also change our current reality. When we know that that's foreshadowed out there, we want to think that way because we live our lives in the present by how we view the future. And so we need to be a people who think of eternity every day. Now, I don't know how this is going to work for you. Maybe you need to write a post-it note and put it up on the mirror. Maybe you need to change the home screen of your phone so every time you pick it up, it says, think of eternity. Uh, Set yourself a reminder that just says eternity every day, and then you'll think of that when that goes off in a meeting, and other people are like, what's that? And you can tell them. Think of eternity every day. And the second thing I would say is this then, be hope. As we think of eternity We're hope, be hope in the now. Because all around us are people whose hope is waning or people who have lost their hope and we get to be hope for them. And there's a million different ways that we can do this. Let me give you just a few ideas. You could text someone a gift card or a note that says, I see you. You could grocery shop for someone. You could meal prep for them. You could advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. You can invite others in. You can sit with them. You can walk with them. You can pray with them. You can pray for them. You can get a tag from the tree in the lobby for for tree of giving to give hope to people. We can share the hope that we have with others. You see, because we have the presence in us, because we know that the future is secure, we have hope in the present. And we need to think along those lines. And we need to remember that and we need to be inspired by that. One of the passages that I love in the Chronicles of Narnia series is the very last page of the last book. When everything is kind of done, 
This is so inspiring to me. And it says, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for this word from Ezekiel. We thank you for this foreshadowing, and I pray that you would continue to remind us that you are in charge, that you are sovereign. Give us courage to live into that. Give us courage to live in peace. Give us courage to live well in the waiting, and give us courage to be hope for other people. And we love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.